And then the physical aspects, and you can include some of the things we've already said, you know, the flourishing of plants, the productivity of animals, the longevity of life, all these things. A New Testament passage is radical changes. And we'll look up that passage. Okay, Eric, why don't you get the first, second Peter passage? Get, do the second Peter three passage. I gave you this in a different context before, but I'm going to reiterate what we said back then. Peter three. Yep. Uh, Hanada, why don't you do Romans eight? And we'll start in verse 19, and I'll have you read on from there. Mark, look up Zechariah 14. And most of these are kind of on a broad basis in terms of the whole universe, probably, or at least the earth, but probably even broader than that. And Jim, Isaiah 35, Vivian, and, and I'll have you read a couple passages there. Vivian, Isaiah 51. And Marcy, Isaiah 30, 23 and 24. Okay, Eric, start us off. Know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. Okay, that's the context of what he's going to expand upon. He's talking about the second coming, and people are going to mock it, and they're going to have a particular mindset that is very present in our culture today. And... Some of you know the big name for that mindset. Keep reading. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fa- ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Okay, that's the attitude. What is that? How do we? What word do we use to describe that? Uniformitarianism. Uniformitarianism. Very good. Uniformitarianism. The idea that the present is the key to the past. This is actually a scientific assumption. Present is the key to the past. In other words, the laws of nature have always been the same. Everything has generally been the same. There might be these cycles, but don't think in terms of anything radical. Kind of the alternative to that scientifically is catastrophism. Mm -hmm. You get into creation science. We assume as creationists that we assume catastrophism because the revelation tells us that. But the culture generally says, well, you know, there's constants, the laws of nature are stable, there's no differences, there's never been radical changes. Second Peter, this is the argument that Peter's making. That is a false assumption. The whole flood thing, the whole fall thing, okay? Even creation, in fact, he starts with creation, the most radical. In other words, there was a time when there was nothing, keep reading and talk about creation. They don't take into account that God has done things that are radical. Go ahead. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So there was an environment, a creation environment. And what he's doing is he's presenting this as case number one. In other words, this is a radical environment that we do not live. He doesn't say it, but the implication, we don't live under those conditions anymore. That was a very good creation And I believe the laws of nature were radically different Mm -hmm. before the fall, which is this very good creation. Genesis 3 spells out very specifically radical changes. And I make the big point in my creations stuff that uh, it affects zoology. The, The snake is different. The serpent is different afterwards. So all of zoology. 
and he's cursed above all the beasts of the field. So it implies that the beasts of the field were also affected as well. So all of zoology, all of anthropology, the woman's body is different. So all of anthropology doesn't specifically spell out the man, but you can assume similar things with the man. For the record, snakes are snakes. They're good dead. Before now. <laughs> okay. At one time, they were very good. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there you go. Biology has is, is changed. Botany has changed. Uh, and you can go down all these scientific categories, if you will. They're all in Genesis chapter 3. Even physics is mentioned in there. Jim. To the, those who hold to the formatory point of view have different points in time or before time where they think things became uniform? No, they, uh, old earthers assume that the laws of science have always been what they are today. Before and after the Big Bang? Well, shortly after the Big Bang. <laughs> yeah, within a matter of seconds, things stabilized. Yeah. In fact, I debated Mike not too recently and... I pressed him on that point, and he says, no, the, you know, no radical changes. No changes in the laws of nature. Constants are constants. It's a uniformitarian assumption. Why press him on the point of what started? I should have, but we only had a... M.O. for next time. That's right. <laughs> now, he doesn't mention the fall, but the Bible speaks of a radical difference before the fall as to the environment after the fall. I just laid all of that out. In fact, from the fall on, we have a cursed universe, and we're living under the curse still. What else does he mention? Now, he alludes to the fall because he refers to the, well, he talks about the time at the flood, which is a fallen environment. So a little allusion to it, but then very specifically he refers to the flood. Read that part. Through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded with water. There's a radical event. Creation, fall, flood. So the whole concept of uniformitarianism, biblically, is a faulty assumption. If there was genuinely a Genesis flood, and if you read the text, you can come up with the same different category, well, not the same categories, but the same idea of different scientific categories like geology, I believe the, the entire geological face of the earth was radically changed. And anthropologically, you see a difference in the ages of people before and after. So something, something's different. The laws of science are different before than they are after. Marcy? Yeah. He doesn't mention it, but that would be a radical event. Yes. Absolutely. You could add that to the argument that undermines this idea of uniformitarian. That's his argument here. That's the point he's making. And he doesn't stop there. He goes on in the passage. We won't read it, but if you read on, he talks about a new heaven and a new earth. So the assumption of uniformitarianism is a non-biblical assumption, and in fact, it's contrary to what the Bible teaches. So you have a flood, and just to kind of complete here, I believe scientifically the Noahic Covenant, God legally binds himself to stabilize an environment such that there's no flood. That's what the promise is, specifically. But if you think of it scientifically, in order for him to make that promise, that means he has to control astrophysics. Because if the moon, for example, gets just slightly out of its orbit, the moon controls the tides. And if it's just slightly out, 
it would cause, in other words, if it's a little closer to the Earth by just small percentages, you will have tidal waves that would go and sweep across continents. So he's got to control all astrophysics. And there's some other things out in astrophysics that also affect things on Earth. He has to affect all of the other laws of nature as well, because there's a lot of other laws that that need to be held in place to prevent a Genesis flood. Hydrodynamic principles, for example, and others as well. So I would say that God controls, under the Noahic covenant, he's bound himself to that, to control every electron in the universe. And there's a stable environment. That's why we can do science, because of the Noahic covenant. All right? There's a future resurrection. That's the first fruits. This is out of the foundations class. Wasn't there a stable Yeah, too? yeah, there was a stable environment. Okay. But it's the point I'm making. It's radically different, and there was stability before the fall. Radically different. There's going to be a change, and the Bible describes a first fruits of resurrection, and this gets us into all those resurrection passages. And if you think of it scientifically. Resurrection, a resurrection body is radically different from mortal bodies. I've got a slide for that as well. And that's going to take place at the second coming in terms of rapture and also physical stepping on the earth, second coming. The Noahic covenant is going to be changed, if you will, or the environment is going to be changed. That's why I put it to the second coming. And in the book of Acts... Peter describes a millennial condition. He uses the word where the earth is refreshed. And that little space in there is the millennial kingdom after the second coming. Jim, do you have it? Well, I noticed in this first Peter, in this second Peter passage too, that the way he describes uh, those who assume the uniform, this uniformitarianism, doesn't even go back before the creation. It only goes back to the fathers before the flood. Yeah. So, I mean, so the... And the person that argues for it today that argues it back even before creation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Old earthers do that. Yeah. Who were you saying only went back to uh, Peter? It says here in Second Peter, it says that they were saying, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. So it sounds like since the fathers fell asleep, all continues. Yeah. They're assuming, that's a Jewish culture, Jewish mindset. So they're assuming patriarchs or even pre-flood patriarchs. So they even acknowledge possibility of a difference. Anyway, back to the chart here. I see miracles from the scientific perspective as nothing more as God demonstrating that if he wants to, on a very small scale, localized, he can affect the laws of nature. He can radically affect them. He can change H2O into one of the most complex biological molecules on the face of the earth just by speaking it into transformation. It's water into wine if you didn't get the H2O part. He can radically change the biological makeup of illness. He can radically change climatology by stilling storms, that sort of thing. He does it on a small scale to demonstrate that he is the creator, and at the second coming, there's going to be a radical transformation of the whole universe. That's in the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom, the point I'm making, the millennial kingdom, these passages indicate physically there's going to be some radical differences. 
We believe the doctrine of the bodily resurrection. So if you believe, and here's where I appeal to the, the old earthers, I ask them, do you believe in a resurrection? Do you believe that it's a bodily resurrection? And there are some characteristics of a bodily resurrection. It has flesh and bones. Jesus challenged Thomas to feel his flesh, put his fingers in his wounds. So it can display some characteristics of mortal existence, but it's different. Jesus exposed scars and wounds. He could be recognized. So there's a recognizability to this resurrection body. He can manifest and he can disappear as well. He ate food, and he's probably a pattern or an example of what we will experience in resurrection bodies. Not that he needs food, but he ate it with disciples and also in the upper room. But that body is a glorified body that can manifest and can do different things that a mortal body cannot. And it's incorruptible and it's spiritual. It's not subject to all of the laws of nature. And it's not limited by time and space. Scientifically, I asked the old earther, what is the effects of the second law of thermodynamics on a resurrection body? Zero. It's for reaction is an equal and opposite reaction. No, second law is everything goes from organization to disorganization. Oh, that's right. I got yeah. Or from a stable state to a disorganized state, mm-hmm. from yeah. life to death, etc. Okay. I got you. Second law. Newton's laws of motion don't have any effect on a resurrecting body. Jesus, for example, the law of gravity. Jesus ascended, didn't seem to be affected by gravity whatsoever. There's laws of gravitation, but all the other laws of motion as well that Newton came up with. What are the molecular properties of a resurrection body? Does the body have cells, and do those cells, are they made up by atoms and molecules? Uh, We don't know. Probably different. Probably different molecular properties, chemical composition as well. The optics, he was able to manifest himself in such a way that the Emmaus travelers didn't recognize him. They just thought he was an ordinary human being. So something in the optics, I don't know whether it was their sight or whether the light that he displayed, you know, we don't know any of these things because this is a different realm outside of the material realm we live in. What are the properties of the biological cells, or are there even biological cells in a resurrection body? Probably not. These are just examples to blow the mind of people that think scientifically. What's the nature of immortality? There's no death. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. In the millennium, if we're... We're talking about resurrected bodies. I know, but this has to... Because we'll be in a resurrected mm-hmm. body. Correct. Mm-hmm. But there will be more... So are only the more... We don't yes. Have yeah, we don't. Resurrected That's bodies, right. right. That's right. That's why we make that strong distinction. Only the mortals will have babies. Because they get the same nature from the... Right. Yeah. We won't. we won't have children. No. No. No, there's no marriage. I've said before and I went, wait a minute. Well, that's what Jesus says. There'll be no marrying and right. giving in marriage. Oh, come on. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway, just, okay, just the physical effects. Second Peter, radical changes based on Second Peter 3, 3 through 13. He's going beyond the physical. He's talking about, you know, there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. And I think he's using Old Testament terminology. We'll come back to that when we talk about the eternal state. Okay, Romans 8. Who's got that one? Is that one? Me. You, Hanada. Start in 19, actually. Romans 8, 19. Okay. 
For the creation waits. <clears throat> excuse me. Now this is broad. This this is the total creation. This is the universe here. Sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration. What is now, that? The creation was subjected to what frustration. Is, frustration Same. is that version? Okay. Yeah. My version, futility or emptiness. Mm-hmm. Probably the Greek meaning of the word. She's what is he referring to there? The curse of all. That's all the fall. The That's the curse. That's the second law of thermodynamics switched on. Mm. Keep reading. Not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected. In other words, nature was subjected by a personality outside of nature, by a person, by God himself. So it says, That's the curse. By the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. That second law of thermodynamics is just someday going to be turned off, no longer decay. There's going to be a radical transformation, and that's at the revealing of you and I. That's at the second coming, where our new natures will be revealed and the old natures will be removed. Who we really are will be seen in Christ, that is, the new nature. So do you think that when it says in hope, it's talking about God creating kind of in a spirit? Well, he's speaking in the context, he's speaking in the context of the first century. In other words, this is future. This is what we hope for. We hope for that blessed hope when all of these things will take place. Where are you? 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. In other words, it's locked into the second law of thermodynamics, and he describes it in kind of biological analogy there. And then 23. Not only so, we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the, re- the redemption of our bodies. He's really talking, he's not talking so much scientifically here, although he is describing scientific situations, but he's talking about the believer and what we hope for. And we're going to be released from this situation. That's resurrection. But the point I'm making here is there's going to be transformation even in the physical realm. The millennial kingdom is, the laws of nature are going to be different. And 35, who's got that one, Jim? 35 plus. One and two, first of all. Isaiah 35. Yes, Isaiah 35, verses 1 and 2. These are some of the transformations that will be evident during the millennial kingdom. Okay, just some biological changes or botanical changes that... Did you read uh, verse 2 there? The glory of Lebanon, they will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Okay, that's millennial. Skip down to verse 7. And ground springs of water in the haunt of jackals. It's resting place. Grass becomes reeds and rushes. So, abundance of moisture, rain, in order for the flourishing of plants... And that's begun with the wilderness transformed probably into lush gardens even. 
Those are physical transformations. Deserts transformed, abundant rain. What did I give you? 51.3? Okay, go ahead and read that one. Indeed, the Lord will comfort Zion. He will comfort all her and her wilderness. And her wilderness, he will make like Eden. And her desert like the garden of the Lord. Okay, great transformation. Those are physical transformations. The environment. Animals. I didn't sign that one to anyone, did I? Marcy. Yeah, go ahead and read Isaiah 30, 23 and 24. Then he will give you rain for the which you will sow in the ground, and bread from the rich and plenteous. On that day your livestock will be ruined and pasted. Also the oxen and the donkey which work around leave salted fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel. Great. Abundant food, plenteous, rich. Animals will have plenty as well. Uh, livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. In other words, abundance of food. Why don't you look up Isaiah 11? We need to look at it. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb. Oh, you wouldn't do that today, why? No. Nope. And the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion, and, and the fatling together. These are zoological changes. Lions will not have an appetite for lambs, and wolves will not have appetites for... They'll lose their carnivorous appetites. And a little boy will lead Okay, a little boy will lead them. Would you let your little kid lead a lion or a wolf? No. So they'll become vegetarian, basically? Some trans- biological transformation. Huh. They'll be tamed. There's, there's passages that will be strong, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's other passages. I'm just giving you some of the more evident ones. You want to do 29, 18, and 19. And here's that 65, 20 again. We won't read it again. On that day, the deaf will hear words. No deafness. Deafness will be reversed. And out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of mine will see. Blindness reversed. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord, and needy of mankind rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. Okay. Healing. Great healing. So healing and health in terms of people. You could include Isaiah thirty-three twenty-four, and no resident will say, now resident of the millennial kingdom, they won't say, I am sick. The people who dwell there will be forgiven their iniquity. 35.6, then the lame will leap like a deer. No lameness, and the tongue of the dumb will shout for joy. So lots of healing. Zephaniah 3.19, and I will save the lame and gather the outcast, and I will turn their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. So people will be healed. Now that's 65, we already talked about longevity, so we can include it here as well, longevity of life. In verse 22, 65-22, For as the lifetime of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. They're going to live as long as trees. And my chosen one shall wear out the work of their hands. Long ages. So those are physical aspects. That's the millennial kingdom. Now, one thing that we'll have to say, because we, we said on that social part, you can include death. Death is still a part of the millennial kingdom. That's the only part that seems, that's noted at least, that seems to be part of the curse that remains. So how but the curse is partially lifted. 
How are they going to die, though? Because the animals aren't attacking. The diseases seem to be reversed. Well, the flesh is not immortal. Mm -hmm. So, old age. Accidents. Well, a youth that dies at 100, you know, what tragedy? Yeah, Yeah, he fell off a cliff or something. Okay, that's the Millennial Kingdom. Any questions on it before we move on to eternal state? Can you see from that description how many hoops you have to jump through to hold on millennialism? Because all of those millennial passages have to be spiritualized. You can't take them literally. Otherwise, you end up with a literal earthly millennium. Well, let's look at the eternal state. We won't complete that today, and we'll pick up there, and then next week we'll... Look at the book of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse. Let me give you a brief introduction. I've already said I make a distinction between what normally Christians call heaven and the millennial kingdom. And I hope you see why we make that distinction. Because all of these passages that pertain to a millennial age that is radically different than the time that we are living in now, And yet, if there's death there, that can't be heaven. If there's mortal beings there, that can't be heaven. So there's a distinction. There's all these physical, social, political aspects. That's not heaven. So those passages are not describing the eternal state. They're talking about a period of time that is earthly, that is literal, that is visible, tangible, part of world history. When we talk about the eternal state, we're talking about something outside of that. And it's hard to describe it. So the passages that describe the eternal state are not easy to conceive because they're beyond what we can imagine. And writers like John in the Revelation have to compare it to things that we are familiar with. But it's so much different that even those comparisons probably fall short. Make sense? So we're talking about... The eternal state. So this is where people have lots of attitudes, different viewpoints. You know, it's really the Christian world messed up the eschaton. Yeah, like we mess up everything else. <laughs> you might say the enlightened church messed us up. Yeah. The further we got away from Jewishness, the more, more messed up we <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, good point. This is an old article, but these come up every so often Time and Newsweek and all the others. The rekindling of hell. In other words, they have these articles, usually around Easter or different times. But it's a hard concept for people to grasp. In fact, Christians, like we've been saying, have messed up the whole doctrine of hell as well. Uh, we have a hard time with it. So we need to talk about issues of heaven and hell. And the general attitude is nearly all unbelievers, unless they're just solidly materialists, that we become plant food when we die. In other words, that's the end of it. Most unbelievers have a concept that there's no hell. And they have a concept that everyone makes it to heaven somehow or some way. Either God grades on the curb or... You have these other ideas that you pay your way in through purgatory and all these other things that are, that are not in, in Scripture. So the attitude of the culture in which we live in and 
spills over into the church, it's good that we have a clear understanding of the eternal state, because eternity is at stake in terms of people's understanding. So, an area that is very fuzzy, and unfortunately it's fuzzy for Christians as well, and we have good reason for it to be fuzzy, because even the descriptions are not that crystal clear. But what is clear, I think, is the certainty of a real heaven and the certainty of a real hell. So those are some of the things we stress. And the options, and what I've tried to summarize on one little slide here, we're talking about destinies or eternal destinies beyond world history. So that little timeline is from eternity to eternity, like I like to give you timeline. And that thousand years is within the world history time frame, within the band between eternity and eternity. And then we have eternity outside, and that's what we'll be talking about, eternity outside of time. And personally, I've mentioned this before, I view time as part of the creation. And eternity, something outside of time that we can't conceive of, tied to clocks. And there is a heaven. Most people look upward when we think of heaven. And obviously Australians look downward. (laughs) But we kind of view it outside of this realm somehow. And the Bible also describes, we'll come back to these, I'm just kind of giving you a a summary, uh, what seems to be a place, the, the New Testament word is Hades, That's the Greek word. It's just a transliteration of the Greek word. That would be equivalent to Sheol, which seems to be a place of confinement, at least in the Old Testament. It's not clear. It may end with the resurrection of Christ. There's not enough passages to be conclusive on that. But Jesus does describe a Hades, and we'll talk about what he's talking about there. That's not hell. seems to be a place of confinement. There's also a few references to an abyss, particularly the book of Revelation, an abyss, which seems to be a particular place of confinement that appears to be a confinement of spiritual beings, demonic spirits. And that seems to be the place where Satan is confined for a thousand years, an abyss. And that also is just a transliteration of the Greek word or sometimes it's translated bottomless pit. And then then we have the great white throne judgment. That's the final event of world history, the end of the millennial kingdom after a thousand years. And it appears that Hades, at least, from the book of Revelation, is cast into hell. And by the way, one of the points I'm going to make, there's really no biblical word for hell. We have come up theologically, with the word hell to describe a place, which I think is accurate. I think it's a place, but just so you know, there's not a a Greek word that's translate. In other words, how do I study the Greek word for hell? It doesn't exist. Some of the words that Jesus uses are translated hell in the King James, and then later translations have picked up from that and have used the same word hell, but there's no Greek or even Hebrew word for hell itself. Does that make sense? I'll give you some of those words in a moment. But hell, the concept, a lot of descriptive phrases, 
but the, the concept is in the book of Revelation, lake of fire. That's hell. And in the book of Revelation, we have Hades cast into hell. So those are what we describe as entities that pertain to eternity. Primarily heaven and hell. Those are the two options. Nothing in scripture except maybe Hades and this abyss give you any concept of something in between that those simply be, seem to be places of confinement until ultimate destinies are determined. So those are your options, only two, either a heaven or a hell. There are passages, we talked about this when we talked about the kingdom, that was part of our introduction. There does seem to appear to be a, an eternal throne that seems to exist outside of the physical universe. The central passage is Hebrews 1.8. And in that passage, it speaks of the Son. He says, Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. So there's an eternal throne that is beyond anything earthly or anything pertaining to the universe or anything pertaining to time transcends time and space. And then the last part of the verse, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. So that throne is within an eternal kingdom. Remember I gave you some verses on an eternal kingdom. That's outside of time. That's beyond this universe. And I think eternal destinies are related to this eternal throne as well, particularly heaven. And I gave you views on death when we talked about the church, so I don't want to go into those in too much detail. Let me just remind you, but in this context, when we speak of death, this is part of the confusion that a lot of people have, what happens after death. I mentioned the materialist are purely material and deny a spiritual realm. They believe that after death, your molecules just break down and go back into the environment as molecules and you're basically plant food. A lot of people believe in the soul perishing. That's the materialist view. The soul perishes. Body perishes. There's the common Roman Catholic view of purgatory. And it is a place of purging, a place of repentance, a place of restoration ultimately. But it doesn't have any biblical support. No, it doesn't. Okay. The second point after the material. Purgatory. Do we know about when purgatory, the idea of purgatory about? Well, it's based, it's based on a couple of passages in the Apocrypha, which are included in the Catholic Bible. One of them is 2 Maccabees 12, 42 through 45. I think there's a couple of others as well. But those are not inspired. The argument against this is that the death of Christ is the satisfaction, the propitiation for all sin. So there's no payment of sin beyond the cross. You either accept the payment of Christ or you pay your own penalty, which is eternal death. Yeah. Comes to judgment, exactly. And that's the key verse, exactly. Hebrews 9, what is it? 9.27. Good. There's soul sleep, or the view that some people have that the soul sleeps until the final judgment. So you're in some point of or place of limbo, undefined, kind of an unconscious sleeping condition. But 
it views kind of beyond this realm as part of the time frame. And I think it's better to view anything outside of this realm as outside of time as well. Soul sleep. I want to come back to this because we don't have time to deal with it, but there's the, we'll talk about it later, annihilationism. This is gaining strength today, even amongst evangelicals. I'm going to give you some names when we get to that point. This is the idea that existence ceases, a ceasing to exist after death. It's almost like the materialist. But what these people, uh, John Stott, by the way, and I'll give you some other names, but people like him, evangelical, they have a hard time with the concept of eternal punishment. And they, they think it's inconsistent with a loving, merciful, compassionate God. So they try to get around some passages that I think make it clear that it's eternal by arguments based on the nature of God in terms of his grace and his love and his compassion. But we'll come back to that. Annihilationism, and like I said, it's growing in the church. And those are the most prominent views come back to the annihilation one because it's present in the church. So, the eternal state, that's the brief introduction. Let's spend the rest of our time looking at the doctrine of hell. One thing that needs to be stressed, and I'm talking about within a Christian audience because people are so fuzzy on this, they have a hard time with it, is the first thing to deal with is the certainty of it. The certainty of it. And there are several lines of argument that you can develop. I won't give you all the passages. As we go through it, you'll see some of these, many of these passages. But first of all, first of all, there's plenty of Old Testament references that reference a place of eternal punishment. And these go beyond Sheol. But you could include Sheol as well, but there's others as well. And I'll give you some of those. There's lots of New Testament. In fact, the New Testament has far more references and far more detail of uh, a place of eternal separation from God that we describe as hell. So I'll give you those. Thirdly, you can argue just from the things that we've talked about in this class on passages dealing with the justice of God. There has to be a just dealing with evil and sin. So the justice of God and the holiness of God demand that there be a dealing with sin. And the nature of sin is such that it has eternal consequences. There's lots of passages that indicate that. So God must deal on an eternal basis. So there must be a place of confinement or a place of punishment. And that argues for the certainty of the hell. And the strongest argument is from Jesus himself. Jesus talks more about hell than any other personage in Old Testament or New Testament. And his descriptions are more vivid than probably anywhere else in Scripture. So just the teachings of Jesus himself. We'll come back to these, but let me just give you a couple. Matthew 25, 41. This is in the context of eschatology. This is the Olivet Discourse. No, 46, rather. Well, 41 also... There's some debate over that, but 46, I think, is clear. And this is still in the Olivet Discourse. You can write down both of them, but let me read verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, unending punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. 
in that context, if there is an eternal life, an eternal presence with the Father, with God, and if that's eternal, then this context demands that there are, it's the same word referred to this eternal punishment. So if eternal life is eternal, and if it's real, so also is eternal punishment, and it also is just as real. There's no distinction that Jesus makes. And there's other passages. We'll, we'll come across a lot of them. So deal with the certainty. And there's lots of descriptions, both Old Testament and New Testament. So let me give you some of them. I've got this chart that I use for both heaven and hell, but we'll come back to heaven when we talk about the doctrine of heaven. The Greek word is uranos, and I'll give you a brief word study on it. In the Old Testament, both New Testament and Old Testament, Old Testament refers to Sheol. The Greek equivalent is Hades, and you can tell from just if you know a little Greek, that Hades is just a transliteration of the Greek word, Hades. And Hades, I've done word studies on all of these. Hades is the New Testament equivalent of Sheol. And there's just lots of passages. I've got a, almost a whole sheet of passages just on Sheol. So the Old Testament is clear on it. 2 Kings 2, 6, So act according to your wisdom, and do not let his gray hair go down to Sheol. Now, most of these passages refer to Sheol as a place, uh, or the place of the dead would be a summary of it. It's probably not the lake of fire, because we have a resurrection of the unbelief. So it seems to be a place of confinement, Sheol, and the equivalent New Testament passages. Also, 2 Kings 2, 9, now, therefore, do not let him go unpunished, for you are a wise man, and you shall know what you ought to do to him, and you will bring his gray hair down to Sheol with blood. Place of confinement. Yeah, I think it, it probably is based on... Yeah, yeah the because that's exactly how they describe it. Right. Another one, Psalm 88.3, For my soul ha- has had enough troubles, and my life has drawn near to Sheol, the place of the dead. Isaiah 5.14, Therefore Sheol has enlarged its throat and opened its mouth, using imagery here, opened its mouth without measure, and Jerusalem's splendor, her multitude, her din of revelry, and the jubilant within her descend into it, using Israelites to descend into Sheol. And lots of other passages. So there's the concept of Sheol, Hades, let me give you a few New Testament passages. Matthew eleven twenty three for Hades, this would be, it seems to be, remember Jesus is speaking to a Jewish audience that had Old Testament ideas. Hades seems to be the Greek equivalent of Sheol. Matthew eleven twenty three. and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? You shall descend to Hades. Descend to Hades. And then he gives a reason for the miracles that occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Place of the dead, Capernaum, Jewish audience. Matthew 16, 18, again, Jesus, I also say to you that you, Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower Hades. 
I think it's personifying Hades. In other words, deadness, the realm of darkness, the realm of the dead is not going to overpower the church. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Always when it deals with Yep. Yep. It's probably based on the concept of Hades. And there's others as well. The abyss, these are isolated passages. There's only a few of them. I think the, and there's a Greek word, abusas, seems to be a, a place of confinement for demonic spirits, including Satan himself. That's where Satan is cast for a thousand years into the abusas. The common word that Jesus most frequently uses is Gehenna. There's the Greek word Gehenna. And what Jesus is doing in every one of those contexts, I I don't know of an exception, he's using the imagery that comes out of the Old Testament. Gehenna was the valley of Hinnom. What is it? South, let's see, southwest of Jerusalem. There's a valley of Hinnom. And in ancient times, during the period of the kings it would, in Jerusalem, this is well after David, it was a place where they just tossed out the city garbage. It was a garbage dump. And what they would do, obviously, what we do today is we burn garbage. Uh, they did that in those days as well. So it was a place where there was just constant burning and smoke and just a lot of negative images it was smelly, it was, it, was, it was putrid, everything was decaying, that lit the caves was decaying. So it became uh, an image of a, just a dreadful place. You, you know, you threw your garbage and got out of there right as fast as you could. And it became an image of that's what it's going to be like for eternal punishment. It's going to be like being confined to the Valley of Hinnom, and that's Gehenna. So Jesus is taking that imagery and using the imagery as a picture of this eternal place of punishment. And Jesus is the one that uses that most often in the New Testament. So Gehenna is the Greek word there. It occurs 12 times. Let's see, 11 of them are by Jesus. Uh, Matthew 5.22 in the Sermon on the Mount. Remember, this is a Jewish culture. I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever says to his brother, Raka, or knucklehead, <laughs> shall be guilty before the Supreme Court, and whoever says, you moron, or you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery Gehenna. The fiery Gehenna. Now, the imagery is that of eternal destiny. The Probably the actual description of, the, of hell is the lake of fire. Here's the Greek two words there, Lumne, lake, and Puras, fire, or the lake of fire, too, is the article there. And that's only in the book of Revelation. There's other passages, I'll I'll give you some of them next time, some other passages that describe it as a place of fire, or a fiery place, or a place of consumption, consuming, a consuming place. But those are some of the key words that sometimes are associated with hell, associated with the concept of eternal destiny. And we'll look at some other descriptive phrases as well. Last time we were looking at the doctrine of hell. Kind of a dreadful topic, but biblical one. A couple of things I mentioned last time. 
keep in mind that there's no specific word for hell that you find in the Bible. The translators use that word to kind of describe, I guess, the concept and the place. But I gave you last time the words that are associated with it. And there's several phrases that are used, but no specific word for hell. When it's translated hell, it is generally a translation of maybe one of these words. And the King James generally takes what Jesus describes as Gehenna and translates it hell. So let's take a look at those words again. Same chart, except I just kind of improved it, I guess you could say. We'll get to the doctrine of heaven in a moment, the place where God dwells. We'll look at some passages referring to that. It'll be the ultimate home of the believers as well, and it's the place of dwelling of angelic creatures, the ones that are unfallen or non-fallen angels. And I mentioned Hades and Sheol. Sheol is the Old Testament passage that refers to the place of the dead. It does seem to be a place of confinement, which in the New Testament The equivalent would be Hades, and most of those refer back to Old Testament time. I'm not sure that there's an actual place of holding, if you will, based on a few passages in the New Testament. It is referred to in the book of Revelation as well, place of the dead. We talked about a word that's not used very often, primarily in the book of Revelation. The abyss seems to be place of confinement for demons, like a prison, demon's prison. And the common word that Jesus uses is Gehenna. There's the Greek word for it. And it's more of a symbol for a place of eternal destiny. That's why it's translated hell oftentimes. And the one that uses it the most is Jesus himself, although I think usage elsewhere as well. But it's more of a symbol. I gave you a little bit of the background It actually comes from the Old Testament place where that arrow indicates there on the map. So it's southwest of the first century Jerusalem. It was a valley called the Hinnom Valley. And it was in that valley, some of the Old Testament background is where the Jewish people who worshipped Molech would sacrifice their babies there. So it became a place in terms of the prophets and godly Jewish people, a a place of not only apostasy and departure from the one true God, but it became also the place where they dumped all of the trash later on. And that's translated from... Kenna. That's kind of the English version of it. There it is right there. So that spot, basically Hinnom Valley from Mount Zion... And by the way, if you were going on my Israel trip, the hotel where we're staying is up on that top of the hill behind those front buildings there. So we're going to stay very close to hell. <laughs> At least for, for a week. Close to the garbage dump. <laughs> yeah. Yep, overlooking it. And obviously today there's no sign of the garbage, but it was a place that was very dreadful throughout its later history, particularly in the New Testament, a place that was continually on fire because they would burn combustible trash, place where things were decaying, 
very smelly, very, you know, you, you didn't want to spend a lot of time there. And Jesus uses it, and it was used commonly as a kind of a dreadful place, as a symbol or a picture of eternal destiny. And that's the word that Jesus uses, Gehenna. Hell, actually, is probably more vividly described as the lake of fire that you have in the book of Revelation. And there's the Greek phrase there, lumne tu puras, which is lake of fire. It is the destiny of Satan and fallen angels or demons, and it's designed for them. There's a specific passage that says that it was created and designed for them, but it's also the ultimate place for unbelievers, their the unbelieving destiny as well. It appears to be a real place. If you can describe an eternal state as a place, I mean, we're using kind of language we're familiar with, but whatever that state is, it definitely is, is literal and real, even though the descriptions are somewhat metaphorical, you might say. But that doesn't mean the place is imaginary or non-literal or non-real. So those are some of the phrases. There's other phrases as well that are used. It's called the place of destruction, outer darkness, black darkness, even eternal punishment, depending on the translation, eternal fire. Jesus calls it a furnace of fire. Tartarus in Second uh, Peter two four. That's probably either the lake of fire. Possibly could be another word used for Hades or Sheol. Book of Revelation refers to it as the second death, more as a condition rather than a location. And the explicit passages are Revelation nineteen twenty and ten. Actually, there's about three of them in chapter 20, the lake of fire. So different descriptive phrases. The scriptures, some of them, place of destruction, Matthew 7, 13, outer darkness, Matthew 8, 12, black darkness, 2 Peter 2, 17, eternal punishment, Matthew 25, 46, eternal fire, Matthew 18, 8, Furnace of fire, Matthew thirteen forty two. There's others as well for some of these. I gave you the Tartarus, Second Peter two four, Second Death. That's Revelation two eleven, twenty verse six, and others in there. And I don't have the Lake of Fire on there, but that's Revelation nineteen twenty and twenty ten and elsewhere. So those are some descriptive phrases that are associated with this eternal place of punishment, an eternal place of torment, you might even say. The severity of hell. These passages that use these phrases are very explicit in describing, using vivid language to convey the idea of severity. And a passage of interest that we should look at is Matthew 11, 21 through 24. And I think for the sake of time, I'm going to read these rather than have you look them up and read them. But that's the passage. Let me just summarize it. That's the passage where Jesus is reprimanding the cities where he performed miracles. For example, Chorazin. 
Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. In other words, there appears to be degrees of punishment based on the depths of depravity, the depths of evil that are performed. And he goes on and reprimands Capernaum and others as well. So Matthew eleven twenty one through 24. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew thirteen forty two, And will cast them into the furnace. There's the furnace of fire that I referred to earlier. Furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And by the way, later on we'll talk about the eternal aspect of it. These verses also emphasize that aspect. I won't come back and read them again, but you can use them for the same. It's a place where there will be weeping and gnashing of their teeth. In other words, there's consciousness. We're going to talk a little bit about some of the views that deny that. Matthew twenty two thirteen. Then the king said to the servants, this is in apparel, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That phrase occurs very frequently. So it kind of describes the agony of it. Talks about being cut in pieces, Matthew twenty four fifty one, And shall cut him in pieces and assign him in a Assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and gnashing of teeth. So, same phrase as above there. Again, used. There's several passages that speak of it as a place of fire or fiery place. You can use that in Matthew 13.42, but also 13.50. We'll cast them into the furnace of fire. There it is again. And then again, the weeping and gnashing of teeth shall be there. Matthew 18, 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than having two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire, a fiery place. Luke three seventeen describes it as unquenchable fire. So there's a time element. It doesn't go out. What was that reference? That was Luke three seventeen. That would be... I think John the Baptist in that context, referring to the Messiah. It's a place of, uh, well, I used, there it is, unquenchable fire, also called torment, Luke 16, 23 and 24. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. So... Torment, it's terrifying, Hebrews ten twenty seven. but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. And then fire again, and the fury of a fire which consumes the adversaries. And in the same chapter, verse 31, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So terrifying, severe, also the same chapter, Hebrews ten twenty nine. So it is a severe place. We tend to minimize it, and these other views that somewhat even deny the existence of eternal punishment, all of them diminish these passages and have to somehow get around them. I'll explain a little bit of how they do that when we get to that point. 
So that's the severity of hell. The inhabitants, I think, are clear-cut. We won't read these. Satan himself, he's cast into the lake of fire. Revelation 20.10, demons are also cast there. That's that Second Peter 2.4 that I gave you earlier. Antichrist and the false prophet. Revelation 19.20, they're cast into the lake of fire. False prophets and false teachers. Second Peter 2.1-3, through 3. rejectors of the Messiah. Matthew 11.23, unbelievers. Revelation 20.15, that's after the great white throne. And even at the great white throne in 2014, death and Hades. So death is confined. Death no longer has its power over anyone because there's no longer any mortals. Everything is in eternal state at that point. So those are the inhabitants. So death and Hades are personified, you might say. Anada, why don't you close for us? Dear Heavenly Father, to come over here to learn more from you to really unbite our lives and the way that we learn your word as literally as we absorb as much information as possible. We can pass along that knowledge along as well, Father God. Praise for, to us. Thank you for using him um, in such a, an awesome way. Continue to be with us. Uh, whatever it is that we're going to be doing after here, keep us safe. We pray and we say thank you for everything today and always. Amen. Amen. Amen.